Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sex like race has been made the basis for unjustified, or at least unproved assumptions, concerning an individual's potential to perform or to contribute to society. These distinctions have a common effect. They help keep woman in her place, a place inferior to that occupied by men in our society. From Critical Frequency, this is B. Beeman, and you're listening to Peace of Mind. I'm a singer-songwriter and producer, I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is called Giant. This is the second to last episode of this concept album podcast, and the theme is gender inequality and the women who often go unsung and overlooked in our society. The song for this episode was inspired by the women who often don't get credit for their work. Our guests are Dr. Nimi Gauranathan, director of the Politics of Sexual Violence Initiative, launched at the City College of New York, and author and journalist Amy Westervelt. And we'll also hear a very personal story from one of our past guests about a female giant in his life. Now, half of human history is women's history, but nearly all of it has been written by men. And that often leads to a downplaying of women's roles at a lot of key points in history. And we see that play out on the personal level, too. So let me just say right now that the reason I decided to do this whole album podcast thing was because of a very important woman in my life my manager and writer-producer on the show, Katie Ross. She's also my wife. And she sat down with our first guest, Amy Westervelt. Amy is an award-winning journalist and the author of Forget Having It All, How America Messed Up Motherhood and How to Fix It. She's also the founder of Critical Frequency and hosts the hit podcast, Drilled. So first off, I wanted to ask what inspired you to write this book. I had my second son three and a little years ago, and at the time I was self-employed and my husband was unemployed, so I was supporting all of us, which meant I couldn't take maternity leave, so I had a baby and like an hour later was filing a story, and then the next day I was at home with the baby in bed with me on my laptop, and then two weeks after that I was walking to the mailbox 
and hoping a check was there and feeling sort of like proud of myself for keeping it all together and like supporting the family and having a baby and not letting any of it slow me down. I wrote this essay called Having It All Kind of Sucks because I was like, I'm doing all these things that everyone says you're supposed to be so proud of, but like it sucks. Also, it sucks that I even feel sort of proud of this. So I wrote that and then my agent was like, you should turn this into a book proposal, but I really didn't want to add to what I call the sort of pile of American miserable mom literature, (laughs) you know, and and it's increasing. So actually I was like, well, I kind of would rather write about why that's happening. Why haven't we managed to figure this out? And why does it seem like it's getting worse instead of better? And that's something else I wanted to ask you about, um, especially here in America. How did we get here to where having it all does kind of suck? I kind of trace every problem in America back to this focus that we have on the individual. I feel like everything you're seeing now, you could point to as, well, yeah, that's what happens when a society places all of its value on individual success. You see the breakdown of communities and just a total lack of public support and very much a like every person for themselves kind of attitude. And I think that In part, that comes from people actually genuinely physically being separated from their families, whether it was colonists coming over or Native American people or African people being violently separated from their families. Like we have a history of family separation and we have a a history of everyone having to kind of look out for themselves. And when it comes to families, what's happened is that every family is really supposed to just figure it out on their own. And at every turn... We've looked at any kind of support outside of that nuclear family structure as being aberrant and dysfunctional in some way. Something you talk about in the book quite a bit is how intersectionality and race are hugely important to any discussion about motherhood. And I think sometimes that gets lost. I feel like a lot of stuff you read or or listen to about motherhood Um, And some of the challenges facing working moms really focuses on white women. And I liked that your book did not take that approach. So could you talk about that? Yeah, I think this is actually like a huge problem in how we talk about this stuff in general. In the mainstream culture, it's always focused on middle class white women. And then any kind of other groups of women are sort of siloed off. So everyone's just sort of speaking amongst themselves, which means that there's no kind of cross-pollination of ideas. And it also plays into this whole thing that we've done forever, which is to sort of hold up the the white middle-class motherhood ideal as the ideal across the board and to make other approaches, you know, sort of dysfunctional in some way. And I think a lot of people, especially in the wake of Lean In, feel like, Mm -hmm. oh, the answer is more women CEOs and things like that. But in your book, you're arguing for a much deeper cultural shift. Um, So what does that look like? Yeah, I think um, a lot of the what I call corporate feminism drive has been like, oh, like, let's just slot women into men's roles in a traditional capitalist patriarchy and then all problems are solved. The U.S. very much places value on competition, individual success, aggressiveness. Um, And yes, those are also things that are coded as male because, you know, we've put men on top of that paradigm. But it's not like women can't also have those attributes. So the idea is not to have slightly better gender balance within the existing system. For me, it's like, how do you create a system that actually places women at the center or that actually places 
what they call matriarchal values at the center, which is this focus on like the greater good versus the self, which would be a very fundamental shift in how Americans think. Um, So that's kind of where I feel like we need to get if we actually want to solve a lot of these issues around the value that we give to caregiving in general, whether it's men or women doing it. And how do you find that men react to all of this? So I have had quite a few men either tweet at me or email me saying basically like, hey, you know, men have it hard too. We also have had an increase in parenting and, you know, familial responsibilities along with keeping the same amount of work responsibilities. And that's not untrue. Things have shifted for men too. We do expect more of men on the home front than was expected of them maybe like in the 60s and 70s. But... If you look at the statistics, there's been an increase in the amount of time that men put into sort of household and child care duties, and they now do about 18 hours worth a week of those kinds of tasks, which is up from like maybe nine hours in the 60s. But in the same period of time, women have not only by and large, added many, many more work hours outside the home. But they've also doubled their work hours at home and with kids. So men are still doing half as much as women, you know? And I'm like, okay, yes, things have changed. But in the case of men, again, like the whole cultural expectation of men has also changed in a way that it hasn't really for women. Like women, it's like the same exact cultural expectations plus an added economic expectation. Whereas I think for men, those two things have shifted a little bit together. So not to say that we shouldn't also figure things out for men. And I definitely don't think that we should encourage men to be as miserable as American moms are. Like, I don't think that's the answer, you know? I actually think like American moms should be more like American dads, like take it a little bit easier. Get 500,000 likes for braiding your daughter's hair. <laughs> exactly. Do morning. Yes. <laughs> it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that we should also be giving mothers that praise. I mean, the expectations placed on men around parenting are so minimal. And I feel like instead of saying like, oh, we should require more of them. No, I feel like it's, it's fine to have lower expectations. We just need to apply those expectations equally. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit. You and I have texted about this, um, the idea of universal child care. Mm-hmm. And I think people, especially maybe middle class families or moms, kind of forget that there's a lot of people that don't have access to childcare, let alone high quality child care. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the situation currently is, because I think yeah. a lot of people don't exactly know who has access and to what. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you know, why universal child care would be good for everyone. Right now, it's kind of all over the map. And that's part of the problem is that there isn't reliable access in terms of like just geographic access. There's actually a huge problem right now with what they call child care deserts in this country, where like there are entire neighborhoods or even counties that don't have a single child care option. So you could qualify for child care, qualify for a program, but there actually is no program to utilize. Yeah. So you could qualify but not find a program. Or you could not even need assistance but not be able to find something close by and then, you know, have to drive extra hours or have to figure something out where you have a, a relative move in or something like that. 
there's just a really wide range of quality. And a lot of childcare get around the rules pretty easily because there just aren't enough people auditing them. So with the universal childcare thing, it would get at the cost, which is skyrocketing for everyone. And I think it's fear of family income is slightly over $50,000 and under, it would be free. And then over that, it would be a sliding scale and would never be more than 7% of your income, which is great because for most people, it's like well over 20%. And they would establish much more of a sort of consistent national approach to childcare that I think is also really necessary. The other thing I'll say is that this pisses me off every time I think about it. The government has subsidized childcare for government workers. Obviously, someone in the government thinks it's a good idea, but we've had several attempts at a national system that have failed. We'll say it's like the number one thing that could actually help to support working families in this country. I kind of wanted to close with, you know, you and I are both working moms um, and we are constantly kind of juggling and having to react to unexpected changes in school or childcare, kids getting sick, really awful, really stressful. But at the same time, we still have a lot of privilege. We're not working at night. We have the ability to take time off. Even if it's frowned on, we're not going to get fired necessarily. Right. We can leave to pick up our kid if they're sick, but the majority of working moms don't have those options. And I mean, I guess my question is like, what are some things that, you know, moms like us who we're not rich, we're busting our ass, but like, what can we do to potentially help support the moms that are not in that position that we are, even though we don't feel so lucky, but ultimately we kind of are? Well, that's a good question because it's hard. And I feel like actually this has been a big part of the problems around discussions of this stuff too is that like even very, very privileged moms feel very stressed out and very put upon and whatever. So it's hard not to focus on your own experience, right? So I think even just kind of learning a little bit about other people's experiences and putting yourself in the position of listening to other people's experiences or even like, you know, putting yourself into other contexts. What about childcare workers? I mean, this is like a whole other interview probably, but yeah. I feel like that's this whole other thing where you're a middle-class working mom, you are privileged enough to have a nanny. The nanny still costs you a lot of money, but it's not necessarily a high enough wage for what they're doing. For me personally, um, when my kid was born after six months and I had been working and my mom was covering for me and I hired a nanny who I paid just as much as, literally just as much as I was making because I didn't feel right about trying to nickel and dime. I could have done that, you know? And when I went on vacations or this or that, we didn't have a formal agreement. Nothing was binding me to it. And I'm sure I could have done even more, but I felt wrong about not giving this person paid time off like they didn't request it mm -hmm. um, and it just feels so icky to me when you're treating this person who's like kind of the most important person in your kid's life besides yes. you yes. Um, as an employee but I understand at the same time you have to have boundaries um, but I think there are small things that you can do as a mom who may have the privilege to have a nanny even if you're like working just to pay for childcare and really yeah. being aware that this person maybe or probably does have a, their own family yes. and like 
what that's like. And I know the woman who was watching our daughter, I ended up hiring her way more hours because the other family that she was working, she had to work two jobs. The other Mm -hmm. family was basically treating her like a servant in some way. And it really bothered me. So it was like, okay, what can I do here? And not everyone can do that. But I just feel like that's something that people should be aware of, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, you may be strapped and, and all those things. Yeah, I had a very similar situation where, like, I really couldn't afford to pay more, but I just sort of, like, took on extra jobs because I was like, I really believe that this job should be paid more. And if you are coming into contact with childcare workers in whatever capacity, paying them a good wage and also just treating them with respect, like, that's a big thing, I think. And actually, I had a conversation with our nanny about this, too. She's like, basically... If I try to get another job, it's, like, impossible because they would look at my resume and see that I've been a nanny for 10 years, and it's, like, that has no value. Mm -hmm. And I was, like, that's pretty fucked up. In the same way that, like, I think stay-at-home moms feel when they go back to work, like, they can't get a job because it's, like, oh, you've been doing nothing for however long, you know? And, like, Mm -hmm. that gets at this whole idea of, like, we don't value caregiving. And actually... It's incredibly necessary and it's incredibly valuable to the economy, you know, (laughs) but like it's sort of just been this thing that women in particular have been expected to do for free or very low wages forever. So shifting the thinking around that too, I think is, is really, really needed. Be sure to check out more of Amy on her podcast, Drilled. And check out her book. All the links will be in the show notes. There are differing opinions about what constitutes true political progress for women in America. And that question becomes very cloudy when talking about political progress and engagement for women globally. I spoke about this with Dr. Nimi Gaurinathan, who is currently a professor at the City College of New York and is also the founder and director of the Politics of Sexual Violence Initiative. Can you talk about the connection between war and sexual violence? I think that sexual violence is something that we look at and very often it's a familiar thing, unfortunately, but through my work, I look at it in a bit of an unfamiliar way, which is to say that we examine sexual violence from the perspective of how it shapes women's emotions, how it marginalizes them economically, a number of different ways, but one of the ways that we're not able to see yet is the political impact of rape on women, how it changes, how they think about justice, revenge, inequality, how it shapes their own distinctive political identity. And in war zones in particular, we've been able to say that sexual violence is a political act. And if one can acknowledge that it's a political act that has a disproportionate impact on women, then we should be able to see the political impact that it has. Um, The reason that I look at it this way is I think that women's resistance really has to be along political lines, that trauma-based mobilizing doesn't work as effectively as political mobilizing. And so recognizing how rape shapes women's politics allows us an avenue to mobilize that is more overtly political as Tamil women have done in Sri Lanka. Can you elaborate a bit more about trauma-based mobilization and why this isn't effective, as you say? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What has happened is that an inability to recognize that women's politics change in that moment means that there's not a space for them to engage politically, by which I mean that largely the reaction to women being raped, and this is not just in Sri Lanka, but around the world, is either this sort of testimonial trauma-based mobilizing, which becomes really complicated because if you create a woman as a sexualized victim, you're unlikely to see her as a political actor. And that's something that's been done since the colonial times with women in the darker nations, is to create this idea of her as a sexualized victim. On the other hand, you have the economic empowerment people who go in with chickens and cows and sewing machines. And this also is sort of tasked with ending sexual violence, right? So it's less about her reaction, it's more about the options available to her after that moment. She can either ask for resources by adopting this identity as a sexualized victim, you know, some basic form of survival of income, or she can participate in these economic livelihood um, re-feminizing programs that are essentially saying here, this sewing machine will take you from damage to normal, neither of which allows her to engage in any real political work. Nimi has traveled across continents to research the female fighters of the world. And their decision to join a violent resistance has as much to do with their respective communities as it does with the politics of the situation. My work has focused on the female fighter. And I have lived and worked with female fighters for a long time, the Tigers in Sri Lanka. Um, And then from there, I worked with women in other movements in Eritrea, in the FARC, in Colombia. And now the work I do in New York with immigrant women on building their own political identities. The reason that I start from the perspective of the female fighter is because I think the perspective of the female fighter gives us a broader insight into mobilizing now and activism now, right? So the female fighter will never narrate her own story as an individual. It's always a question of the collective, right? Whereas now you see a lot more narcissism and activism, a lot more branding, a lot more social media. But I think there's a lesson there to say that one should always consider the collective before the individual. The female fighter also has a very clear place for trauma in her political work. Now, not that it's not recognized, but that the political fight for racial equality, religious equality, you know, any other form of of political struggle comes before a fight for women's rights, right? Um, which is not to say trauma is not relevant, it's just positioned within a political narrative. And I think that also is something we can learn from. I don't often articulate the stories of women because I think that we do this too often. Now everybody says they're uplifting the voices of women. And I think that our role is to listen to the difficult conversations being had on the ground rather than extracting an individual voice and putting it into a Western conversation. And so from being a part of these conversations with female fighters, with activists, with radical feminists in different countries and different spaces, I shape my own sort of political insights there. I don't rearticulate either the stories or the traumas of women in other spaces. That's a really interesting thing to say, like about westernizing the individual story. 
almost for entertainment consumption. Um, is that kind of how you feel it can be exploited in a yeah. way? I think that when you create something, let's say, you know, a sexualized rape victim, right? And you create it as this vessel, this empty, empty vessel of, uh, with no politics to it, then her pain can be used for somebody else's politics. And you see that over and over again. You see it with, you know, Nadia Murad and the Nobel Peace Prize, right? You see it with Malala. You see, you know, where women's pain from the developing world, because they've carefully depoliticized her, she can be repoliticized in different agendas, right? Anybody's agenda. And, you know, that's sort of the work right now with the women at City College that I'm doing is to make sure that they have control over their own stories, their own politics, and also really sort of stay away from the kind of narcissism that is antithetical to movement building, which is a problem right now, I think, in activism. With the female fighters you've come across, I'm sure there's many, many reasons why they've joined. And yeah. for people in the West, it's probably very difficult, I guess, to understand. And can you talk about why they join? Any experiences you've had with these women? Yeah, I mean, I think the female fighter becomes difficult for people because there's fundamentally a belief that women are more peaceful than men, right? Relying on these tropes of women as nurturers. And where people won't say that outright anymore, they will say that women are supposed to be more democratic than men, right? So the female fighter really gets at these entrenched gender perceptions, right? She's overtly politicized. She's politicized in a way you don't agree with. And she's violent, right? And the violence, I think, is where people really struggle. It's very difficult for us to conceive of violence as a form of resistance. And I think that's where the female fighter and her motivations can be really useful. Now, even where they join for different reasons, what my research has found is that there is a pattern of repression. You know, it may be that she joined because she needed a salary and she needed food. It may be she joined because she was coerced into joining. It may be because she had an intellectual connection to the idea of fighting for a separate state. There are different reasons why she joined, but what connects them most often is an experience with repression from the state, which is not to say that she was in the middle of a shelling, but that at some point she didn't have access to a hospital when she was very ill or she was sexually harassed at a checkpoint on the way to school or she was actually caught in a shelling or in a refugee camp, right? Most of these women, whether you're talking about the FARC or Eritrea or the Tigers, have had direct experiences with state repression so that the ideology of the movement appeals to them, you know? And really, when you talk about this woman who's been raped who is all the way on the outside of society, you know, like in Sri Lanka, she's in this place of extreme marginalization. She can't go back to the village because the village will be suspect. She can't go to weddings or community events because she's bad luck. She can't get married. So she's in this place that's, you know, all the way on the outside of the mainstream of society. And then, you know, people come in and offer her a sewing machine to come back you know, all of these layers. And then on the other side, there's a militant movement that says, do you want to have protection? Do you want to take revenge? Do you want to feel powerful against this government? A lot of women will say yes. Mm -hmm. I was watching some videos of yours on YouTube and this one word empowerment came up. And can you talk about why the word empowerment is problematic to you? And the word empowerment was actually created by feminists in the global South. In India, they gathered a group of feminists from Mexico, from Brazil, across the global south. And at the time, the word was intended to incite 
political mobilization to fight against colonial interests and cultural oppression. And eventually, somehow, it entered the UN and it morphed into this idea of indigenous women in Bolivia sewing string bikinis so white women can shop for a cause, you know, or handing out bakeries and sewing machines to really any woman anywhere. You know. So what was offered to her was this power in the form of making $2 a day. And that to me is not real political power. And so my argument is that if you get rid of the word empowerment, you can't have a bunch of people going to foundations and saying, I'd like to work on women's empowerment. But if you have to actually argue, how exactly are you changing her individual family, community, state level political power, right? By giving her a chicken, then it would be much harder for you to do. We also talked about what resistance looks like here at home and what can be done beyond attending marches and rallies. I mean, I work with my students at City College a lot to start to sit with anger. And I think it's very difficult for people, and particularly in this moment, that you have this kind of hastily erected political platform every three seconds on social media. But I think that most women, you know, you see something, you hear something, you read something, and it makes you angry. And that immediate reaction is not actually going to get us anywhere. It's the ability to sit with that anger and figure out what it is that's making you angry, you know, to marry that with critical thinking, to be able to identify like the forces of oppression, no? And I think that doing that work is what allows us to to create much deeper political connections between black women, between Tamil women, between indigenous women, right? But we can't just say solidarity all the time. It's very popular to say we're in solidarity and everybody shows up at a protest because there's no politics there, right? There has to be a political connection that we see that we're actually all fighting against a militarized police force. We're all fighting against state violence. We're all fighting against a kind of entrenched racism in this country and the countries that we're from. So I think that even for women who are not on the front lines doing activist work, I think you have to really be thoughtful about how you show up as an ally, right? Um, and what it means and how you can show up in a much deeper way for other women who are doing this work. I think that how you raise your children is is really going to be important, particularly now that this country has, you know, it's been revealed how deeply divided we are along race, it's going to be the next generation that's going to have to deal with the fallout of what's been unearthed by this presidency. How has the Me Too movement helped or hurt the movement to end sexual violence, in your opinion? That's a big question. I think the Me Too movement has to be considered um, in two different ways. One in a space it provided for survivors, and two, in a mission to end sexual violence. And I think the problem is sometimes we confuse those two and we overtask these movements. I think it's done an incredible job of creating space for survivors to have a conversation, to connect with each other. You know, as I said earlier, I have concerns about trauma-based forms of mobilizing. What you saw in something like the Kavanaugh case, right, shows the limits of trauma-based mobilizing. Here you had women going up against Kavanaugh with trauma, right, purely on trauma. The woman who was in power, Susan Collins, a congresswoman, 
she acted politically, right? When she made her vote for Kavanaugh to be in the Supreme Court, what she, in her head, you know, is I want somebody there who's going to reinforce the wall at the border, who's going to put money into Homeland Security, you know, her political agenda. She didn't care about the trauma that was being used to challenge power. So, you know, fundamentally, Dr. Ford and Tarana Burke, who started the Me Too movement, you know, were both victims of sexual violence, yes. But the sexual violence happened for two very different reasons. And I think that it's a smaller movement. Now, it's a little bit more divided when you when you mobilize along political lines, but it's the only way to combat the politics of people in power, women in power. And is there any one key thing that you'd like to see happen in your lifetime? I would like to see, particularly amongst this next generation of young women of color, the ability for them to acknowledge their rage at the various forces of oppression and to feel entitled to it without feeling crazy and for them to continue having the ability to open up the political space for them to have distinctive politics, right? And not have to be these sort of peaceful activists that you want them to be. So I think it's not something that that we were allowed to do, but I think that the more we open up the political imagination to absorb this spectrum of women's politics, the stronger the resistance will be. You know? And I think at the very least, if if this next generation of women can feel that they're not crazy, mm-hmm. that would be something. Nimi is a giant 100%, and I'm honored to call her my friend. Please check out her work at beyondidentity.org and check out the rest of the links in the show notes. I talked with Todd Schulte in episode four about his work at forward.us on United States immigration and criminal justice reform. And I've known Todd since we were kids in St. Louis. And I asked Todd if he could share a little bit about his younger sister, Roz, a United States Air Force first lieutenant. Yeah, so she was my younger sister, three years younger than me, and kind of growing up had this big sense of adventure. It was not like she grew up with this idea that she wanted to go and join the military and do these things necessarily. I should say my grandfather was in the military in in World War II, but neither of my parents were. But I think just this sense of um, wanting to build something bigger than herself, wanting to give something back. I always like joke with my parents that like she watched Top Gun too much as a little kid, which is true. (laughs) But she was just this person who... I think wanted to surround herself with a mission where she could hold herself to something up higher. And when she was a sophomore in high school, she started to think more about the military. I think she looked at the Naval Academy, but like pretty quickly had this idea that she wanted to be a fighter pilot, which is interesting given what happened. So she went to the Air Force Academy to like check it out. But she went and she, I think, very much felt this was a really good place for her to be. She went to the Air Force Academy. She did incredibly well. I think to her credit, you find yourself in these institutions and all institutions have these like hierarchies. And like if you go to the Air Force Academy and you do really, really well, the kind of right of first refusal is to want to go and be a fighter pilot. And she was like second in her class in terms of like her rank. She did really, really, really well. 
She did incredibly well. And she went one summer, basically in bed, with a bunch of fighter pilots. And she came back and she said, I don't want to do that. I don't think I will be able to succeed as much as I can help in other places. And that sticks with me because it's a really big thing for a human being to basically say, I'm in this institution that glorifies this particular position. And I'm a woman who wants to break through barriers. But this isn't the right thing for me, and I know that. And she took on really hard stuff. I mean, she worked on chronic sexual harassment in the military when she was 20 years old. She became a military intelligence officer. She knew she was going to deploy. I think like us, she probably assumed she would deploy to Iraq. That was where the vast majority of troops were at that point. And in 2008, she found out she would be deploying in early 2009 to Afghanistan. You go through this thing where you like, you do the formalities of what it's like to have someone go abroad. You know there's a possibility that this person won't come back, but you're like little sister, and because it's your parent's daughter, it doesn't really seem like doing anything but like, oh, it'll be totally fine, it's the right way to go, and I, I don't know if that's wrong. Like, dwelling in the possibility of death is not a good way to go through life. I remember she came to Washington, D.C., where I lived, because she was deploying for BWI. We dropped her off at BWI. And this was 10 years ago to this week. She did work liaising between kind of mission planning and military intelligence for the Afghan military. And this always stuck to me. It never occurred to my parents. She was exactly halfway through a six-month appointment. Uh, I was like walking out of my apartment to go to a really boring meeting. I was very stressed. I was going to be late for the meeting. And I got a call from my folks. Uh, I just knew, just heard something in my dad's voice, and they said, you know, Ross is dead. We give thanks for the lives of our fallen comrades, Lieutenant Rosalind Schulte. The last conversation I had with my sister had been two weeks prior, and I cut her off basically and said I had to go because my then girlfriend, now wife's father, had died, and she called me to chat. And we talked for a couple minutes, and I said, I'm really, really sorry. I have to go. I can't believe I'm telling you I have to go. You're in Afghanistan in a war zone. The funeral is starting in one minute, and I can't be late. And of course, she understood. But yeah, the last time I talked to my sister, it was a very lovely conversation. But me being like, oh shit, I'm late, I gotta go, I gotta go, Roz, I gotta go. It's a very strange experience to have these people come into your life afterwards who you never met. You'd heard a name or two, and 10 years later, they're still in, in my life, in my folks' life even more. And her friends? Her friends, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I speak publicly about politics probably on a daily basis, and this is like a very political thing. In 10 years, I have successfully avoided ever being baited or talked about what happened with her in any sort of a political setting. It's like the only thing in my life that that's probably true. But, you know, I'm just really thankful for the time that she was here and thankful for what she did. Uh, 
And this May will be 10 years and, you know, try to do just a little bit better in the world to, to do a little bit of honor to her. And we named my first daughter, uh, middle name after her. And I, I try to like be thankful for the opportunities that I have that she doesn't and just try to do a little bit better and think about that stuff. Roz was killed by a roadside bomb near Kabul. She was the first female U.S. Air Force graduate to be killed in enemy action. What? We didn't give up. We were what? Persistent. Can you say it loud? Can you yell persistent? Persistent. Who else was persistent? Malala. What did she do? She went to school. And what did she persist? How come she was persistent? Because the boys had to go to school. Yeah. And then what happened to her? She got to go to school because all the children had left. Yeah. Um, and was she brave? Uh-huh. Uh, and who was Ruby Bridges? Even though Ruby Bridges couldn't go to school, she went anyways. Yeah. Yeah, what about Rosa Parks? You know what she did? She what? went on the bus. Yeah. But the Pete, everyone who was Pete said, Rosa Parks was brown, so the, all of the Pete said, yeah, you can stay on that spot, right? Uh-huh. And then they, she sat there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was my daughter and wife. And Peach is what she endearingly calls white people. I'll be breaking down today's song, Giant, in just a second, but I wanted to tell you about another great podcast I think you'll enjoy. Catch up on the day's headlines and more with The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Not only will you get your news fix, but you'll also get commentary from the world's fakest news team, extended interviews with guests, and special episodes of Between the Scenes, Trevor's hilarious, candid, off-the-cuff conversations with the audience. Subscribe to The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition, on Monday through Friday mornings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I was definitely inspired by this song called Masanga uh, by a really great Congolese guitarist, singer-songwriter, you could call him. Guitarists from Central Africa play the guitar in just such a beautiful way. Um, But Africa as a whole has all kinds of genres of great guitarists. And, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to play with View Farcatore, who's Ali Farcatore's son. Tons of great guitarists coming out of East and West and Central Africa. And Jean Bosco Mwenda is the name of the Congolese guitarist that this was kind of like loosely inspired by. I actually played this song, Masanga, at my wedding as 
my wife walked down the aisle. Um, so it has a special place in my heart. And back to my song, Giant. There's a lot of tricky rhythms going on. Like you can hear my thumb going boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding. The melodies kind of play off of that. You can hear that kind of amazing polyrhythm stuff from a lot of guitarists. There's, um, I mean, there's a dude named Franco. Who's more of an electric guitarist? Who's really dope? But this is definitely like kind of a, a solemn American singer-songwriter type of song. The lyrics really have to do with women having to deal with all kinds of problems. And even that first line, "She's a giant among men," um, is a flip on that saying. He's a giant among men. It's always been assumed that it's a man uh, who's the giant among men, and I wanted to kind of turn the tables uh, 180 where she's a giant a giant among men originally I had written he's a giant but literally after the 2016 election I changed the lyric to she is a giant it was an upsetting time I felt sadness I thought my daughter was going to see the first female president and I felt like she was treated very unfairly. The thieves in tyrants, their hands on everything. But these these consistent themes of, of swimming upstream, you know, meeting resistance at every turn is a constant theme. Hey, gladiator, go ahead and take a swing. Lay down your armor and let it float downstream. And a big inspiration, as always, is my mom. She grew up in northern Sri Lanka as one of nine children, you know, made a lot of sacrifices. You know, she was kind of like a second mother to some of her siblings. No electricity. She never had a pair of shoes for a long time, and she used her education to lift herself up. She went to medical school and ultimately became an ER pediatrician in St. Louis. She has told me some of the most harrowing stories I've ever heard, and and she definitely has ice in her veins. Um, she sometimes asks me if I get nervous about going on stage, and I'm. it's kind of a funny thing because of what she does. You know, she gets unresponsive babies into the ER and she has to resuscitate them and you know on a time crunch but she's cool as a cucumber hi demand this is mom i'm just calling say hi once we leave tomorrow we may not be able to talk to you till we come back on the 29th anyway have a good week all right um take care and we'll talk to you i love you bye-bye This guitar solo was a lot of fun to play. Um, I love this moment that it arrives when the guitar solo arrives. and the, There's an organ going on underneath there. 
and then these drums. Kind of like a marching drum. Like you're going into battle. I did play this to a click live on acoustic guitar and sang it live. There's not a lot of opportunity to sweeten the vocal or, or any mess ups with the guitar, but the take was really good. I think it was like the third or fourth take I did. And especially when you're singing and playing guitar uh, and doing the click, it, you can get off of the click and you just got to kind of like make sure you get back on without messing up what you think is the one beat. Because um, sometimes you can end up thinking that the two beat is the one and then it's absolutely a nightmare. The take just won't work because you've just gone way off the rails. But programming this drum beat, I remember being a challenge because I just had to go in with every single snare hit and kick drum note. The guitar playing was really good. Um, it might not be right on the click, but the feel was better than the click. So spending that time on the drums was worth it for sure. And I thought it'd be fitting to have my friend Aliyah Shade, who also sang on Have a Little Faith with me, to have her come and lend her talents to this record. Now here's the full song, Giant. It's out now with all the music from the series on Peace of Mind, the album, streaming now on all platforms. You can buy vinyl and CDs at Beeman.com.
And I've slayed some monsters But I've never killed a king Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency, one of the few women-owned and operated networks. If you want to support them, consider joining Critical Frequency Premium, where you can get access to ad-free and bonus content for shows like Drilled, Peace of Mind, and a bunch of others. Check it out at criticalfrequency.org join. I'll be performing in D.C. on April 18th, New York on April 19th, and Boston April 20th. Tickets are available on peaceofmindpod.com, And don't forget, all music from the show is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon. To order vinyl and get access to bonus content and other cool stuff, join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash beeman. That's patreon.com slash b-h-i-m-a-n. This episode was written and produced by Katie Ross and me, B. Beeman. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. All music for the show was written and performed by me, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and me. Additional editing from Finn Matthews. For extra content and upcoming tour dates, go to peaceofmindpod.com. And please support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us next week for some peace of mind.